Well, good evening. This evening, we're going to finish our series of studies in Second Chronicles. And this has been an uh, enjoyable study for me to go through the historical books of First and Second Chronicles. And with that, they were really just kind of the last two books uh, for me to teach of the 66 books since I've been here pastoring since uh, 2003. So now we have a complete catalog. Well, as of tonight, we will. Uh, but in either case, we are going to get into chapter 36 and in verse 11, where we're going to talk about Zedekiah's reign as king of Judah. He's the last king of Judah. And it's always easy to remember the last king of Judah because it's Zedekiah with a Z, last letter of our alphabet. But this evening, as we open up God's word, it's important to realize it's a pretty depressing story. As we talk about the fact that God's people failed to be God's people. They, they, they failed to be the people that God had called them to be. As we consider that, it's sad when we see the world going through so much turmoil. But the world is always going through turmoil. That's something we can sort of expect. But when the church or God's people are experiencing turmoil for not obeying God's word, that's perhaps the most depressing thing to consider. And this evening, while we won't be talking about the church, but we'll, we'll be talking about God's people, Israel, the kingdom of Judah, as they see finally in their nation the consequences of rejecting God after generation after generation. Now, I do believe that in our country today and in our culture, the church is strong. Actually, I think it's gotten stronger. The true church has gotten stronger. Even if the numbers have dwindled, the, the church has gotten stronger. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's a good thing that sometimes the church gets a little smaller and gets more spiritually sensitive and becomes more uh, spiritually strong. And I think that that's a good thing. But, of course, we'd love to see the church grow. All churches grow. But I've, I've said this over the years. You can see growth in two ways. You can see growth as a very healthy thing. Like when a child is growing, you hope that child isn't stunted. You want that child to grow. Actually, when they're really little, you don't. You want them to stay small. Uh, but of course, you do want them to grow up. That's, that's the truth. But there is, or, there is a different type of growth. It's the kind of growth that you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, I have this growth. It's a cancerous growth. And when we have a cancerous growth, it, it can grow very quickly, but it can also be very unhealthy. And so I would say that not all growth is good. But the healthy kind of growth among God's people is what we seek, not the cancerous growth. When we just have the church grow for the sake of growing, it's, it's a bad thing. So God's people, God's people during the time of King Zedekiah, they had, they had reached a point where uh, they needed to be judged. They, they weren't going to repent. Things weren't going to change. And so as we get into chapter 36, last chapter of Second Chronicles in verse 11, we'll see that God brings about his judgment on the kingdom of Judah. Let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we know that you desire good things. You desire to bring blessing into our lives and into our hearts. But that you can only do that when we're willing to follow you, when we're allowing you to lead our lives and bring us to where you've called us to be. So we surrender our hearts and submit our lives to you, asking that you would help us to be the kind of people that you can bless. And not only just bless us, but bless through us. 
For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 11. In verse 11 in 2 Chronicles 36, we read, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. Now, Zedekiah had inherited the kingdom of Judah from his nephew, Jehoiachin. After Jehoiachin was dethroned in the third month of his reign, he was dethroned after three months and ten days. So he barely got established, not even established, on the throne, and Zedekiah uh, was made king. You see, Jehoiachin, his nephew, was dethroned by Nebuchadnezzar because he refused to pay tribute to Babylon. Of course, the people didn't want to pay tribute, but when Jehoiachin decided that they weren't going to, at that point, Nebuchadnezzar got involved, and he brought Jehoiachin, king of Judah, into political exile, never to return. It's covered in 2 Kings 25. So Zedekiah was actually made king by Nebuchadnezzar at age 21. He was the third and the youngest of King Josiah, uh, who was a good king, King Josiah's sons, to reign as king of Judah. So three of his sons and one of his grandsons reigned over the kingdom of Judah. Now this man, Zedekiah, was the full brother of Jehoahaz, the first son of Josiah to rule, and the half-brother of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who had recently been king as well. But when he came into power, because Nebuchadnezzar placed him on the throne, he became a willing collaborator that served Nebuchadnezzar as a vassal king. He took the position because he wanted power and authority, he wanted the position, but he owed that position and his loyalty to a foreign power. Sounds a lot like some of these people that get elected to Congress, or even in the White House who find themselves indebted to foreign powers or powers that are working actually against our nation because they've received money and influence and power from those that desire things that are contrary to what's best for our nation. But that's what happened there. And Zedekiah's name means righteousness of Jehovah. And not really a righteous man, but that's what his name meant. He reigned as king for 11 years. Now, we're told in 2 Kings 24, his, name, his mother's name was Hamiltal, and she was the daughter of Jeremiah, not Jeremiah the prophet, but he was a, a man who had a chance to do the right thing, but didn't because of power. Ultimately, later on, he tried to do what was best for the nation, not necessarily serve God, but it was too late by that point, as we'll see. Anyway, his relationship with the Lord is summed up in verses 12 through 16, and we'll read it there in 2 Chronicles 36. In verse 12 we read, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before God. And uh, so he did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, but because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, but they 
mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. So you see, they got to a place where there simply was no other remedy. There was no other way. It makes me think of, there are times when we can become so unhealthy that surgery is our only option. And I'm not talking about something related to an injury, but I've seen this happen with people who deal with diabetes or they're unhealthy and they they end up staying so unhealthy, their diet is unhealthy, and then as a result, they end up having parts of their leg amputated and things can happen like that because there's no other remedy. Things have gotten so bad that unfortunately the only way to help that person come to health is to cut off part of their limbs. You would think that would be the last resort, and of course it should be the last resort, And this was the last resort. God had been merciful with his people, and yet they continued to do evil, just as Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Zedekiah chose to follow the wicked example of his brother, Jehoiakim, and he chose to follow the example of all of the wicked kings of Judah that preceded him. The kings Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah had all done evil in the eyes of the Lord in a very short period of time, about 22 to 23 years. The kingdom of Judah was ultimately destroyed because of the Lord's anger against them. God did not want to have to bring destruction. God never wants to bring that kind of judgment. But when there's no other remedy, when there's no other way, God will do whatever is necessary to save his people from themselves. Just like amputating that offending limb. But this man did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord to him. Jeremiah encouraged him to humble himself before Nebuchadnezzar. Over and over again in Jeremiah 21, 27, 34. You'll see in the, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet pleading with this man, though he was wicked, pleading with him to just humble himself before Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and accept the judgment of being in submission to this foreign power that they might not be destroyed. But Zedekiah, rather than listening to Jeremiah the prophet, imprisoned Jeremiah for speaking the truth against the kingdom of Judah. You see, because he didn't like the truth, he imprisoned Jeremiah. What we're seeing in our world today is very much like this. If you have the courage to speak the truth, to say what's true, you'll suffer for it, especially in today's culture. I saw an article, I think it was in the UK, where a chaplain was simply teaching the truth about homosexuality as a chaplain teaching from the Bible the truth of homosexuality, and now he's in big trouble because he spoke the truth. There may come a point where speaking the truth, and truth like that, that's unpopular in our culture, or or believed to be a lie, though it is the truth, may cause you to lose your job. Or it may cause you to suffer or be persecuted. It it may cause you to suffer loss. But understand something, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. And the more people who are willing to speak the truth despite the consequences, the more people who are willing to do that are the more people who will be able to help others to see the truth. 
But if you back down and you make nice and you say, well, you know, I really don't want to cause any problems. I don't want to rock the boat. Well, then all you're going to do is assist this crazy culture in embracing lies. You know, I used to read in the scripture, in Paul's writings and in other writings within scripture, um, I used to read of a description of the last days where people would want to be lied to, even within the church. They, they would have itching ears, and they'd want to hear things that aren't true. And you'd read in Romans where Paul said, you know, God will send them a strong delusion that they would believe a lie. And I used to think to myself, well, how is that going to happen? And I used to think it would take some work of the devil on some scale that we couldn't even imagine. And I'm sure that the devil has something to do with it today, but I am shocked and amazed at how many legitimately sane, I mean, they're not insane, thinking people are willing to believe what the media and others just tell them. Nowadays, you just, you just change it. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Just, just you don't like the truth? Change it. You don't want to take blame for something? Just lie. Just outright lie. It is amazing to me that people today in power lie with impunity. They, 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 they just lie. And if you have an ability to see the truth, it's infuriating. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jeremiah to have received God's truth and in God's mercy to have spent the time pleading with Zedekiah to embrace the truth and repent? only to have himself imprisoned for speaking the truth. Anyway, Zedekiah didn't listen to Jeremiah. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in defiance of God's word. We, we read about that in, in verse 13, really. Anyway, he broke an oath of loyalty that he had made to Nebuchadnezzar in God's name. He took an oath and he broke it. And he became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord. And even the leaders of the priests, who were very powerful men at that time, and the people were unfaithful to the Lord. They followed the detestable practices of the nations and defiled the temple of the Lord. And the Lord sent messengers over and over again to them to try to reach them with the truth. But what did they do? They mocked them, they despised God's words, and they scoffed at his prophets. I think you should expect more and more of that from the people who are currently in power. That the more you speak the truth of God's word, that their reaction is to mock, despise God's words, and scoff at those that speak it. You see it, right? But you can't stop doing what's right just because people don't want to hear it or see it. You, you, you can't stop preaching the truth just because it's unpopular. And the one good thing I have to say during these trying times is that the churches that are still standing after this pandemic, so-called, uh, are the churches that have not stopped preaching the truth. So praise God for that. Well, this was not going well for them, obviously. But if you want to know more about how terrible things really were, Jeremiah and Ezekiel recorded in their books the moral condition of Judah during the time of his reign. So if you want to know more about what was happening during the time of Zedekiah, those two prophets, those books, they're rather long books, but those books will record that or do record that and will enlighten you as to just how bad things really were. Now, Zedekiah's reign 
and the destruction of the kingdom of Judah is covered in verses 17 through 20. And I want to read that. In verse 17, we start up there. It says, he brought up, that is God brought up against them, the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of God, or excuse me, the treasure of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried them into exile to Babylon. The remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And so we come to this abbreviated version of the account of the fall and the destruction of the kingdom of Judah. There is much more recorded in 2 Kings. We've studied that before here on Wednesday nights, and there we dealt in great detail with the destruction. But it's enough here to know that they're reflectively looking back many years later and remembering, as, as the prophet or the scribe, Ezra, the priest, uh, records the history and compiles the various historical accounts as he presents that information. He's doing so retrospectively, looking back, whereas Kings was recorded at the time. This was recorded many, many years later, and looking back now at a time that they can remember, but also understand that God was faithful. The message here is one of encouragement, not one of chastisement, because the people that did these things were long dead. This is an encouragement on the part of Ezra recording their history to remind them where they came from and encouraging them to do right before God. So understand, these books are very much about encouragement. That's why a lot of the negative things are left out. They're recorded in First and Second Kings. But here, it's just the purpose of encouragement, really, to encourage them to do the right thing as a people after they returned to the land. And so all that's recorded for us. Now, a little bit of history from Second Kings will put together all of the details here. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem from the ninth to the eleventh year of Zedekiah's reign. Remember, he reigned for eleven years. Zedekiah tried to maintain sovereign control over Jerusalem during the siege. They were surrounded. The siege lasted a year and a half, with only a brief reprieve, a, a brief reprieve when Egypt came to their aid. This resulted in a famine that totally decimated the people of Jerusalem, weakened them. Zedekiah and his army got to a place where they realized they were done. They fled Jerusalem. They snuck out of the city after the Babylonians conquered the city. Talk about cowards, right? Had they submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, they would have saved the city. That's what Jeremiah was telling them to do. They didn't listen, but they tried to escape under cover of darkness in order to avoid being captured. Jeremiah and Ezekiel had predicted the fate of Zedekiah. In Jeremiah 32 and in Ezekiel 12, they told them, you're going to get it. But it's interesting what they said. 
They essentially said, you're, you're never going to, you're never going to see it happen. You're never going to see it. But it's interesting because while he never saw the captivity, he did go into captivity. Well, how is it possible that someone could not see it, but still go into captivity? It seemed like a contradiction. Well, what happened was Zedekiah was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 586 B.C. He was overtaken by the Babylonian army in the plains of Jericho, and his army scattered. They left him. They ran away. He was taken to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah, where he was tried and sentenced for his rebellion against the king of Babylon. They killed his sons before his eyes, and then they gouged out his eyes. He was bound with bronze shackles. He was bound with bronze shackles and taken prisoner to Babylon. Yes, he went into captivity to Babylon, but he never saw it because they gouged out his eyes. It just goes to show you how God's word is always true. It's always true. Amen? When Nebuchadnezzar then completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they killed many of the people in the city during this siege, They plundered the temple, carried away all of the remaining precious metals. That pays for the campaign. They need the metal to, to have the money to pay their troops, right? And the army burned down the temple of the Lord. They broke down the walls around the city, leaving it defenseless. And that comes up later when we talk about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, when they try and attempt and succeed to rebuild the walls. But they burned down the palace and all of the important buildings, and the priests and the leaders of Judah were taken to Nebuchadnezzar and executed. See, there there was no other remedy, we're told. Then they took the survivors into captivity, the poorest of the people. They deported them to Babylon. They were made slaves to work the land under Babylonian rule. The exiles became servants in Babylon until it fell to the Persians. Jeremiah, though, was freed. He was freed and treated with respect by the Babylonians. Why would that be? Well, they knew that Jeremiah was telling them to submit to Babylon. They knew that Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of the Lord and that he had actually been imprisoned for telling them to do the right thing. So when they came and conquered the city, they freed Jeremiah and they released him. He was held in high esteem. See, God was working through the Babylonians, and of course, he spared Jeremiah. But everyone else, many, all the leaders were put to death, and all the rest of the people taken into captivity, and really become, they became slaves. That was it. So, this marks the third and the final phase of the prophesied 70-year Babylonian Captivity, and that took place in 586 BC. The major date, 605, Daniel's taken into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar takes over the city, but he doesn't destroy it. In 597, Nebuchadnezzar gets involved again. He plunders the city, he doesn't destroy the city. He takes the king into captivity, Jehoiachim, but he also takes Ezekiel and several of the artisans, thousands of the artisans, and some of the other people, and leaves the poorer people behind. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and as we've seen already, just decimates, destroys the city. Jeremiah goes on to write the book of Lamentations, which is God 
mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not Jeremiah mourning. It's the lamentations of God mourning that he had to bring that judgment on his own people. You see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't, doesn't look forward to judging his people. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He wants us to submit to him and be blessed. But he brings judgment when there's no other remedy. And sadly, that was the case here. Well, the Lord allowed the people of Judah to be taken into captivity, again, for their many sins against him. They had a history of idolatry and rebellion against the the Lord their God. That's clear. We've seen that in our studies. The kingdom of Judah had existed for over three centuries, from 931 to 586 B.C. It lasted a long time. And during that time, it had 19 kings, and most of its 19 kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord, most of them. In fact, only eight of the 19 were considered good kings. Four were very good. The other four were good, but the rest of them were all evil. And even among the good and evil kings, four of them were assassinated, three were dethroned, nine died natural causes, uh, of natural causes, they died natural deaths, and the the remaining three died prematurely. So it wasn't a history that was filled with victory, it was a history of failure. The Lord faithfully warned them over and over again of the consequences of their wickedness through prophets. That's why we have the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others. But they were finally set free at the end of the 70-year Babylonian captivity, which ended around 538 B.C. And one of the things we've seen here that I believe Ezra records for us in verse 21, I want to read it again. It's quite fascinating. It says, The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. See, the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah to the people of Judah as they began their captivity. He he told them up front, this is going to be 70 years. That's 70 years a long time very long time. Think about it. They were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Supposed to be like 38 years, or excuse me, supposed to be two years. It ended up being an additional 38 years because of their disobedience and their rebellion. Actually, they're, they're not trusting God to enter into his promises. That goes back to the wandering in the wilderness. But this judgment was 70 years. So most of the people that went into captivity, majority of them, never saw the captivity come to an end. Pretty severe judgment. And Jeremiah recounted this prophecy to Zedekiah in 588 BC, two years before they were destroyed. See, Judah had refused to listen to the word of the Lord. Jeremiah had faithfully preached God's word to them for 23 years. From 627 to 605 BC, he preached faithfully for 23 years. And many other prophets faithfully preached God's word to them as well, but to no avail. No one wanted to listen. And yet, they went into captivity. Judah was judged for their refusal to listen to God's word through the prophets. Jeremiah tells us that. That's why they were judged. So I want you to just hit the pause button in your mind for a second. Why were they judged? because they refused to listen to God's word. Why were they judged? Because they refused to listen to God's word. It's important to recognize that 
Because as a nation and as a culture today, to the degree that we refuse to listen to God's word is to the same degree that we are in danger of being judged as a culture, as a nation. As we reject the word of God, that's a degree to which we know we are vulnerable, we are certainly worthy of being judged by God. That's the consequences. See, you can be wicked. You can be a man like David and make tremendous mistakes and sin against God. But if you have a a, a heart for God, if you're a man or a woman after God's own heart, you can repent and be restored. We've seen this over and over again in the lives of the kings of Judah. And yet, today our leaders are walking dangerously close to destruction. Not because they make mistakes, because all men make mistakes, all men and women make mistakes. Not because of that, but because we are rejecting God's word. So I'm very concerned that the church continue to preach God's word so that the culture around us has an opportunity to obey God's word. However, if they continue to reject God's word, judgment will come upon them. And you say, oh, Pastor Tim, what about us? Well, what about Jeremiah? Jeremiah wasn't judged. Jeremiah was let go. He was freed. He was actually being persecuted by God's people. But when the Babylonians came in, they freed Jeremiah. So you you see, it's important that we're faithful. We cannot control what our culture does with the truth. We can only be faithful to preach the truth and share the truth with others. And the truth, thy word is truth. That's the word of God. So just understand why they were destroyed. It's very important. Oh, they were destroyed. Why were they destroyed? Because they refused to listen to God's word. God was continuing to speak to them. They refused to listen. Now, Jeremiah predicted the final destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586. He says, everything I said was going to happen, it's about to happen. He let him know. It's going to happen. And I think when and if that time were to come for us, God would make it clear that it's about to happen, at least to his people, if not to all people. And I don't think we're there yet, but we're we're getting dangerously close as a culture and certainly as a nation. Judah would lie in ruins for the remainder of the 70-year captivity until about 539 B.C., 538-539 B.C. This prophecy was originally given by Jeremiah at the very start of the 70-year captivity. At the very start of it, so you got to go back to like 605 B.C. That's when Jeremiah told everyone what was going to happen. But ultimately, we know there were three captivities or three moments where successive destructions of Jerusalem and ultimately bringing them to the place where they were destroyed and ultimately released from captivity by the Persians, as I've said, about 538, 539. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had already taken many of the people of Judah captive when he first announced this prophecy, but he later again recounted this prophecy just two years prior to its fulfillment. So it was like Jeremiah told them up front what was going to happen, and then he continued to remind them what was about to happen over and over again. You see how God pleads with those who are wicked over and over again? He doesn't give up on people. So don't you give up on people. If God doesn't give up on a wicked king like Zedekiah, who are we to give up on the wicked leaders that are ruling our nation today? Continue to pray that they would respond to the truth. But in order for that to happen, we have to preach the truth, the word of God. 
Now, Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy is truly amazing. They had been in the land for 490 years prior to this 70 years of captivity. But during that time, they had not obeyed God's law concerning the Sabbath rests. In God's word, in Exodus and Leviticus, they were told, listen, farm your land for six years. In the seventh year, let the land rest. Just like we rest on the seventh day. In the seventh year, that was the Sabbath year, not the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, let the land rest. First of all, we know this in agriculture, crop rotation is a good thing. You don't want to strip the land, the soil of the nutrients, and you need to give the land time to rejuvenate, to regain the nutrients. And so what you do is you rotate your crops, and that's one way to do it. Well, the way that the Jews were supposed to do this, they were supposed to farm for six years, And then in the seventh year, they were to live off what they had put aside for six years. It's a Sabbath. It's a time of rest. And then God promised them that in the next year, they would be so blessed, they they would have what they needed. It was this idea of God providing for your needs and you trusting God. See, that's the thing with the Sabbath day. It's really about you trusting God that if you only work six days, God will provide for your needs so you don't have to work seven. I hear some people say, well, I have to work seven days a week. Well, then you don't believe what the Word of God says because that's one of the big rules, right? Big Ten, right? Keep holy the Sabbath day. Now, we understand not everyone uh, can take a Sunday off, and you may have a rotating schedule, but the principle of the Sabbath is that you're working six, not seven days a week. You're taking a day off every week. Does it have to be Saturday or Sunday? No, it doesn't. But please, that principle is so important. Now, the Sabbath year is also an important principle. It spoke to the Jews and their agricultural uh, approach, but to us it says, you know, learn to trust God with your resources. Don't kill yourself and trust in yourself to provide for yourself. Do what you're supposed to do and then learn to trust God with your resources. Therefore, because they had not done this, they had not obeyed God's law, Concerning the Sabbath rests, the land would enjoy a total of 70 Sabbaths during the captivity. So you see what happened is God said, you didn't want to let the land rest for 490 years? Guess what's going to happen? 70 years, going to get those 70 years of rest in the land after all. And they did. The land experienced the 70 years of rest. While the people of God were being judged, the land rested. Now, Babylon, who God used to judge the kingdom of Judah, they would be judged by God for their national sins as well. And Jeremiah made this clear. The 70-year captivity would end with Babylon being conquered by Medo-Persia in 539 B.C., just around the same time. See, God knew all this. Actually, he told Daniel in advance what was going to happen. And on Sundays, recently, we studied through the book of Daniel and learned these things together. But Babylon... As a culture, as a city, perhaps certainly as a culture, will be completely destroyed at the end of the Great Tribulation. We read about this and we'll study this in a couple of months in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. Now you say, well, well, what happened to Babylon? You know, it's funny because Jeremiah talks about the destruction of Babylon, Isaiah talks about the destruction of Babylon. The book of Revelation talks about the destruction of Babylon. Would it surprise you to know that the city of Babylon has never been destroyed? 
Yeah, it actually has never been destroyed. It's, it's a ruin today. It, it lies abandoned, but it was never destroyed the way that the Bible says it would be destroyed. See, what happened is the Medes and the Persians, and we read about this in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. We studied it. They came in and they took over the city of Babylon and they set it up as one of their capitals. But they didn't conquer the city. They snuck in the city, took out the leaders, and took over the city. So it wasn't destroyed. And Babylon continued to be a major city within the empires that followed, including, well, certainly the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, ultimately, Alexander the Great found his way to Babylon. I believe that's where he died. And then, of course, you had the Romans. But ultimately, over time, the city of Babylon just, just sort of was abandoned. But it became a, really just an abandoned place, a ruin. But it wasn't destroyed. And so as we look at God's word, the fulfillment of God's word demands that it be destroyed. So what does that mean? Well, some people believe that it means that the city will be rebuilt and then destroyed. That's likely. Some people believe that it's not so much the city, but the system of Babylon, the worldly system of Babylon that will reemerge and be destroyed. And that when we're talking about the city of Babylon, we're talking about the culture or the system and not the actual city of Babylon. That's possible. And as a result, Rome is often linked. But Rome isn't today what it will ultimately become, if that's true. Essentially, it's, it's easy to say it could be Rome. It, you could say it's actually Babylon. Regardless, the truth of the matter is that the capital of the world will one day be destroyed, according to the words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the book of Revelation. Where that physically is, is debatable, but whether or not it will happen is not. We'll get to that in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. In fact, Jeremiah prophesied extensively against Babylon and the surrounding nations in his book in chapters 46 through 51. This once great empire of Babylon would soon become enslaved by the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and so it did ultimately fall out of power but not destroyed. Well, another thing we want to see as we close is in verses 22 through 23, we read this, and this is actually a segue between the book of Second Chronicles, we believe written by Ezra, and the book of Ezra chapter 1 written by Ezra. So there's a sort of an overlap here, but we'll just look at this for now. In verse 22, we read that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you May the Lord his God be upon, or excuse me, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up, that is, to Jerusalem. So you see that we, we get to that moment, we'll pick it up next week in Ezra where we see more uh, of what was actually said. This is just a, an excerpt of the entire proclamation. But essentially what we're being told at the end of this book is that the day did come where the 70 years were over and Cyrus, king of Persia, released the Jews to go and to rebuild not their, not their cities, not the walls. That wouldn't happen for some time, but the temple. And that's where the book of Ezra picks it up. 
But for now, Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple in 538 B.C. The prophets confirmed that the Lord would call a man named Cyrus to issue this edict. And one of the most fascinating biblical prophecies is included in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, where Isaiah predicted Cyrus by name. Now, that's about 700 years before Christ. Remember, we're talking about something that took place in 538. So about 150 years earlier, Isaiah predicted Cyrus by name and said that he would allow his people to return. That was before they were even taken into captivity. Kind of hard to get that prophecy uh, right if you don't have the wisdom and the word of God. (laughs) Well, Jeremiah predicted the timing, as we've said, the edict of 70 years. So Jeremiah tells us it's going to be 70 years. Isaiah tells us the man's name is going to be Cyrus. You think God might know what he's doing? Yeah, I think so. And what's interesting, in the midst of all of this, Daniel, the, the prophet, prayed for the fulfillment of these prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah. The same year that they happened, he was praying. We read about that and studied that recently in Daniel 9. So you have Daniel praying for the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah to come true. Imagine how they must have felt when they realized the Persian emperor's name was Cyrus and Isaiah had told them 150 years earlier that Cyrus was going to release them. Can you trust God's word? Amen. Pretty cool. Well, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to issue this edict, and I want you to think about why. I want you to think this through with me. I don't know this, but it's, it's, it's worth thinking it through. Cyrus may have been influenced by someone. In fact, he may have been influenced by Daniel. Remember, he he was prominent in the kingdom even early on, as we learn in Daniel 6, Daniel 5 and 6. He may have even used, that is, God may have even used the influence of Daniel to bring about this decree that we're reading part of here. See, portions of Cyrus's edict are recorded three times in Scripture— We have this portion here. We have two other portions in Ezra 1 and Ezra 6. So you put them all together, you see that there's more than just one excerpt. But I think that uh, the original edict was probably much longer, but it contained all of these excerpts, which are given to us in three different places. Cyrus was tolerant, extremely tolerant, of all of the captive peoples that were now living in Babylon. He had not taken them into captivity, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had. So when he takes over Babylon, he's very tolerant of them and really allows them to go home. But he was very tolerant of the Jews in particular. Why would that be? Could it be the influence of Daniel? In fact, the degree of favor shown in this edict, as you read it, causes us to question if Daniel didn't write it himself. In fact, I suspect that while Cyrus put his name to it, the edict was actually drafted by Daniel. Isn't that pretty cool to see how God works behind the scenes, tells us in advance what's going to happen, then brings about what he said would happen through his people, through his prophets, through his leaders? Well, the the first portion of the Edict of Cyrus is recorded there in verse 23. And in it, Cyrus recognized the Lord's providence in his reign over the earth. He, He understood that God had allowed this to happen. 
And he recognized that he had a responsibility, and indeed a calling, to support the rebuilding of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. I'm certain that Daniel made that clear to him. He acknowledged God's people Israel and God's city of Jerusalem in his edict. And he encouraged any of God's people that desired to return to their homeland in Judea. He encouraged them to do so. And so we come to the end of these books and we realize God was in control all along. And that's really the encouragement that Ezra is sharing with God's people. God is in control. That's the message. That was the message of, the, of, of Daniel's book. It's the message of this book. Hey, listen, it's the message of every book of the Bible. It's the message of the Bible. God is sovereign over all the earth. He's in control. So if you're thinking that because things are so, quote-unquote, out of control today, that somehow God is not in control, let me reassure you. God is in control. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord, you're good, you're gracious, you're merciful. You continue to encourage us. Even through the failure of your people, we're encouraged to trust in you. Because when we fail, you never fail. You never leave us nor forsake us. We can rely on you. We can trust in you. We know that you are to be trusted because you're faithful. And because you're faithful, we can put our faith in you. May we, as your church today, Lord, be faithful to pray for our leaders and pray that you would continue to plead with them in mercy until there's no other remedy. And then, Lord, we pray that you'd bring your judgment, but that you'd spare your people, that you'd be merciful to those that trust in you like you were to Jeremiah, but that you'd bring about your judgment in your time according to your will. Lord, we certainly pray that As a culture, we would respond to your word, not reject your word. Respond to your word and be spared. But if not, Lord, we trust you with that as well. We lift up our nation, our culture. We ask that all those that are currently demonically blinded and filled with hate toward Christians and your word would be set free from the demons and the the devil who take them captive at their will. We pray that you'd release them and show them the truth. Open their eyes. Release them from the blindness that they've embraced, the the wickedness, the stubbornness of their hearts, that they might see the truth and repent and be spared and be saved. Lord, we know you're in control. We pray that you would put that truth in our hearts, that we might never forget it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.